Well, as I already mentioned, as we already prayed, the book of Ecclesiastes is, is not an easy book. Probably for many of you, what draws you here even is the fact that you have read that book numerous times and have been very perplexed at what you find in its pages. And yet, as, as difficult as the book of Ecclesiastes is, it is one of those books that has inspired all kinds of art, has inspired all kinds of speculation, has inspired all kinds of thoughts in response. It is, it is a perplexing book, and yet it is not a book that is completely ignored. All of us have had some exposure to the book of Ecclesiastes. All of us have had some exposure to some of the, the very well-known statements that the writer of this book makes. And yet, we still are perplexed. How does this book fit into our lives today? Well, that's why we as men are gathering on Wednesday nights for this year, is to look at that particular question and to answer it. And we're going to start this, this evening by looking at the very first words of this book and look at the author and consider him as the wisest of fools. Now, before I explain that title... We do need to look a little bit more deeply at Ecclesiastes in terms of its challenges. Why study Ecclesiastes? Charles Bridges, the famous 19th century evangelical expositor, begins his commentary on Ecclesiastes with this acknowledgement. He says, quote, the book of Ecclesiastes has exercised the church of God in no common degree. Many learned men have not hesitated to number it among the most difficult books in the sacred canon. A more modern writer has said this, Ecclesiastes is one of the most difficult books in the Bible. It has been called a baffling book, alien among the other books of the Old Testament, the most problematic of the whole Hebrew Bible, and some have even said it's an embarrassment to the Old Testament. One writer has said that some treat Ecclesiastes as the black sheep of the Bible. Another writer says this, Ecclesiastes is universally acclaimed as one of the most enigmatic in the Hebrew Scriptures. Aside from agreement on that point, however, almost every facet of the book has been a matter of contention among scholars and commentators. In fact, the challenges that Ecclesiastes presents and all the writings that it has inspired really affirms what you find in Ecclesiastes 12, verse 12, which says, the writing of many books is endless and excessive devotion to books is wearying to the body. You certainly find that when you study commentaries on the book of Ecclesiastes. There's no shortage of them and there's no shortage of opinions. Now, one of the reasons why Ecclesiastes is so difficult is that it presents us with many tensions, many many perplexities. It's as if in one moment the writer of Ecclesiastes will look at life from one vantage point, from one pole, you could say, and then in the very next breath, he seems to completely abandon that and, and look at it from a totally different perspective, even somewhat antithetical. And so, for example, 
you find in the book of Ecclesiastes these very key moments when the writer will give what are called these carpe diem statements, seize the day. Uh, For example, in 2 verse 24, he says, there is nothing better for a man than to eat and drink and tell himself that labor is good. This also I have seen that it is from the hand of God. And, And there's three of these very important carpe diem statements that exhort us to seize the day, to enjoy that which God has given to us in its fullness. And yet at the same time, you have the, the motto that Ecclesiastes is so known for, the statement, vanity of vanities. All is vanity, says the preacher. You see that at the very beginning of the book in 1 verse 2 and at the end of the book in, in 12 verse 8. It's really the, the parentheses of the book. And, and that term vanity then is found dozens of times throughout the book. So how do we reconcile these, these tensions? On the one hand, you will have the writer speak as if creation is good, as if it is something to be enjoyed. On the other hand, you you see him writing about creation in the sense of it being cursed. You see it also in terms of the fruitfulness that on, in, in one breath, the writer of Ecclesiastes will, will extol that we have been created to be fruitful. And then at the same time, or in the next breath, he'll go on to talk about the futility of of our labors. On the one hand, he will extol the dominion that we are to have over creation, and then in a few breaths later, he will talk about the sense of powerlessness that we face in this life. On the one hand, he'll talk about the need to enjoy, and then on the other hand, he'll talk about the need to deny the pleasures of this life. On the one hand, he'll talk about life itself. And in a few moments later, he'll talk how death is desirable. How do we reconcile those things? Those have created perplexities in this life, in, in our own experience of life, as we, like the writer, have come to experience both these sets of dilemmas. One commentator, Philip Ryken, explains the the genre of this book with these words. He says this, it is not the kind of book that we keep reading until we reach the end and get the answer like a mystery. Instead, it is a book in which we keep struggling with the problems of life. And as we struggle, we learn to trust God with the questions even when we do not have the answers. And that is why this book is so important to us today. When we look at what is happening in Western society, we see the veneer being ripped off. It was for many generations, Western society, Western civilization was kind of a growing utopia that it was providing increased life expectancy and an unstoppable progress in the creation of wealth in the increase of comforts, all the medical advances. And we, we would see that Western society was just developing into this, this greater and greater picture of, of happiness. And yet, as we've seen in the last several years in particular, that veneer now is being pulled away. And we start to realize that a lot of those things which we once prized are 
are transitory. And we start to see the decay of a, of a nation, a civilization, an empire, so to speak. And we're confronted with some very ominous future. So the book of Ecclesiastes is going to help us as we work through those things. As we realize that what this life has to offer is indeed a, is indeed a vapor. It is indeed a shadow. That some of the, the things that we work so hard to achieve, those goals that we set for ourselves in our youth, that we prided ourselves with, and that we invested into all of our energies, we start to realize that it, it, it doesn't deliver. It doesn't provide us with the satisfaction, the significance, the meaning that we thought they would. In fact, we see those things being taken away, and we wonder, where is meaning to be found? Where will we find significance? And the book of Ecclesiastes is important because it's going to teach us that so long as we keep our focus on this world, on the material world, we will not find what we're looking for. We will only find the vanity, the perplexity. We will not find the solutions. Solomon is going to teach us that in a very vivid way. Let's look now a little bit more at this book and the introductory issues then that we're faced with. When we look at Ecclesiastes, you you may wonder, why do we call it Ecclesiastes? Especially when, according to the Hebrew, the the title is not Ecclesiastes in the Hebrew. It's Koheleth. That's what it's titled in the Hebrew. And Koheleth, as we'll see in just a few moments, means preacher or teacher. Our name, Ecclesiastes, actually comes from the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, Ecclesiastes, from the Septuagint. And there, too, it's, it's got this idea of ecclesia. It's got the idea of someone who's a part of a congregation, someone who's a member of an assembly. It gets that title from the Hebrew, but adds a little bit of interpretive gloss to it as well. And this book of Ecclesiastes belongs in our Bible as part of what we call the literature, the wisdom literature of the Old Testament. We know this literature as comprising the book of Job and Psalms, Proverbs, and Song of Songs. Now, when we talk more specifically about the authorship of this book, we're introduced to him in the very first words of Ecclesiastes, and it's these words that we will spend our time looking at this evening. When we think of such a perplexing book, it is very important to consider the authorship of, of this book and consider how his life has personally contributed to the perplexities that he describes. We see him introduced then in these opening words, 1 verse 1, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. We see him referenced again with a little more detail in chapter 1 verse 12 where he says, I the preacher have been king over Israel in Jerusalem. We see him also identified and described by his own words in verses 9 to 10 of the very end of the book, chapter 12, where he says this. He says, in addition to being a wise man, the preacher also taught the people knowledge. 
and he pondered and searched out and arranged many proverbs. The preacher sought to find delightful words and to write words of truth correctly. Now, with these descriptions and particularly the words of 1 verse 1, let's learn a little bit more about this this author. First of all, he identifies himself, number one, as a skilled speaker. 1 verse 1, the words of the preacher. Again, I said in the Hebrew, the term here is koheleth. In fact, many commentaries simply entitle their commentaries koheleth after the, the Hebrew title. And you read those commentaries and they'll refer to the author of the book regularly as koheleth. Well, what does that mean? Well, that's the writer's self-designation, a, a kind of nickname that he gives to himself. But there's some very important significance to take from that. He uses it three times in the opening chapter. He uses it three times in the closing chapter and once in the middle to show us that everything in this book from 1 verse 1 to 12 verse 14, everything in this book comes about as a result of his efforts. The term koheleth, or preacher, is derived from a Hebrew word which means to gather, to assemble, to collect. And so the question is immediately raised, well, what is this preacher? What is this Koheleth collecting? It could be that he's collecting wise sayings. But usually this verb that's used is not used to refer to the collection of things, but rather it is used to refer to the collection of of people. He is one who collects people. He is one who convenes a meeting and speaks to it. That's the idea of the preacher. And so we can say that this preacher, this Koheleth, is one who has a message. It, is, it comes from the pen who has, of one who has something to say who wants to gather readers and deliver a very important address to them. He has a very formal sermon to deliver. It's sincere, and as we're going to see, it is very persuasive. He has collected speeches. He has collected arguments and illustrations. He has collected truths, but more than that, he has collected a people to whom he will address these truths. And it's interesting to note that at the end of Ecclesiastes, as he describes the words of wise men in chapter 12, verse 11, he said the words of wise men, including what would be the words of this book, Ecclesiastes, are goads. Now, what's a goad? A goad was a pointed stick that a farmer would carry with him as he hooked up oxen to a plow. And to motivate those oxen to pull the plow, he would take that stick and poke it in the, in the back of the leg of the oxen. That's a goad. And Solomon says that the words of wise men are like goads. And we can understand that the words of Ecclesiastes will be like goads to us. This preacher has a sermon to deliver. He has a word for us. 
It is serious. It is profound. And it will be persuasive. He is going to throw all he's got as he is moved by the Spirit. He's going to throw all he's got at communicating what is a very important message for the people of God. He's going to deal with issues that we know exist, topics of discussion. We know exist topics about life and death, about the, 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 the place to find significance and the places where not to find significance. He has all these issues on his mind and he knows those are the issues that his audience does not want to think about. He knows that they'll think about many other things, but they do not want to think about these things. And so he has put this book together as one who is uniquely qualified, both in terms of his wisdom, his knowledge, in terms of his skill as a speaker, as a teacher, in terms of his superintendence of the spirit. He acknowledges at the end of this book that all of these words come from one shepherd And in terms of his own experiences in failure, he is uniquely qualified to deliver this address. One commentator puts it this way, the purpose of the preacher is to gather together the desponding people of God from the various expediencies to which they have resorted in consequence of the inexplicable difficulties and perplexities in the moral government of God. And he's gathering them together into the community of the Lord by showing them the utter insufficiency of all human efforts to obtain real happiness, which cannot be secured by wisdom, pleasure, industry, wealth, and so on but consists in the calm enjoyment of life, in the resignation to the dealings of providence, in the service of God, and in the belief in a future retribution when all the mysteries in the present course of the world shall be solved. That's a mouthful, but he gets it. That the preacher is gathering us through his works, from all the distractions of our lives, from all the futile pursuits, from all those things that we would rather think about than thinking about the most important things in life. He'll gather us together with these words and show us where we can find true happiness, not in the things that we typically consider to be sources But he will turn us to our creator. He will turn us above the life that's under the sun to a life that is above the sun. He will turn us to our God, the one shepherd who gives meaning to life. He is that skillful teacher. He is the one who has something to say. Secondly, we see that he's a royal descendant. We see that back in 1 verse 1, the words of the preacher, the son of David. We see here his identification with a very prestigious lineage. In fact, we could look at it this way. In terms of religious lineages, in terms of 
lineages that have importance with respect to religious things. There is no lineage that is more important than the lineage connected to David. And this writer is the son of David. And immediately when we read of that, we have to take our, our, our minds back to the Davidic covenant that established the importance of this lineage. And for example, Second Samuel chapter 7, in Second Samuel chapter 7, David expresses his desire to build a house for Yahweh. Up to that point, worship of Yahweh had just taken place in this movable tent. David now wants to build it, but the Lord says to him, no, you're not the one to do this. And then he says this, in, in beginning in verse 8 of Second Samuel, of chapter 7, he says, Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, speaking through Nathan, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep to be ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make your name great, like the name names of great men who are on the earth. I will also appoint a place for my people, Israel, and I will plant them that they may live in their own place and not be disturbed again, nor will the wicked afflict them any more as formerly, even from the day I commanded judges to be over my people, Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord also declares that the Lord will make a, that you will make a house for the Lord. When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. Remember that. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. That was the Davidic covenant. God had promised David that his son would build him the house, that one would come from his own line who would take the throne after David and be part of that establishment of this endless lineage, this endless reign. But also when we see that he's a son of David, we also recall that David himself was not a man of absolute purity, not by any stretch. In fact, Solomon has a very unique connection to David's transgressions. David was not a perfect king. In fact, as much as he was a man after God's own heart, he was one to commit adultery with Bathsheba and then to arrange the murder of Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, and then take Bathsheba as his wife. You remember that that incident then sets 
the scene for what will be the rest of 2 Samuel, beginning in verse, or in chapter 11, all the way to the end of David's tragedies, his transgressions. Things don't get better for David. From the moment that he commits adultery with Bathsheba, his woes begin in earnest to the point where even at the end of his life, he again breaks the commandment of God and orders a census and is responsible for the discipline that is then meted out on the nation. When we think of Solomon as a son of David, we must recognize he's connected to that because Solomon comes from the union of David and Bathsheba, not the first child. Obviously, we know that the first child dies. 2 Samuel 12, 24 to 25, David comforted his wife Bathsheba after the death of that first child. But he went in again and to lay with her, and she gave birth to a son, and he named him Solomon. Now the Lord loved him, that is Solomon, and sent word through Nathan the prophet, and he named him, Nathan did a nickname, Jedidiah, which means loved by Yahweh. Solomon is that one who is loved by Yahweh. He is the one that is envisioned to be the one to build that temple for the Lord. In fact, if we go back to chapter 7 and we read of the one who is going to commit iniquity and who is going to be corrected with the rod of men and the strokes of men, it is this child, Solomon. Solomon was... David's second son with Bathsheba, but interestingly enough, the tenth son overall in David's family. And as I said, even though Solomon is going to rise to the throne, he is still connected with that sin-stained union that David had with Bathsheba, and yet nonetheless, showing that God can draw straight lines with a crooked stick, God calls Solomon the one I love. So he is part of royalty, but as we then see from Ecclesiastes chapter 1, when we go back to Ecclesiastes, we, we see there as well that this Solomon was king, not just a son of David, but king in Jerusalem. He was a monarch, and of course that takes us back to the record of his reign. And when we study that record of his reign, we find out that it is a very checkered reign. Like the book of Ecclesiastes itself, with all the perplexities, with all the seeming contradictions, so we have a king who has a reign with these great contradictions. The writer identifies himself as well as the preacher who is king, not only in Jerusalem, but over Israel. And that is important because there is only one who fits that. There would be others who would come in the line of David, but there was only one descendant of David who ruled the united monarchy, the united tribes of Israel from Jerusalem, and that's Solomon. Only one man fits that bill. And so when we get to these words in chapter 1, verse 1, and chapter 1, verse 12, we see that it could only be Solomon who writes this book. He doesn't identify himself by name anywhere. He just calls himself the preacher. But 
due to the fact that he also calls himself king who reigns in Jerusalem over all of Israel, you only have one option, and that is Solomon. We could go then to 1 Corinthians, or 1 Kings, excuse me. 1 Kings describes the ascent of Solomon to the throne, and it begins in the, in the beginning of, of 1 Kings with chapter 1. You, you read of, uh, of a chaotic time when the, another one of David's sons sees that David is becoming ill in his old age and essentially impotent, and so the son, Adonijah, seeks the throne. And in a a special turn of events, quickly Nathan and Bathsheba come to David and call upon David to act. David had been negligent to that point, and now it's time. And they compel David to act, so finally David does. He says, call Bathsheba to me, and she came into the king's presence, 1 Kings 1, 28 to 30. The king vowed and said, as the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life from all distress... Surely as I vowed to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, saying, your son Solomon shall be king after me, and he shall sit on my throne in my place, I will indeed do so this day. And Solomon is appointed the heir, the successor to David. Then we get into chapter 2 of 1 Kings, and we read this very important charge that David gives to his son as David is about to die. As David's time to die draws near, 1 Kings 2, verse 1, he charged Solomon, his son, saying, I am going the way of all the earth. Be strong, therefore, and show yourself a man. And this is how you do it, he says. This is how you be strong and show yourself a man. He says, keep the charge of the Lord your God to walk in all his ways, to keep his statutes his commandments, his ordinances, and his testimonies, according to all that is written in the law of Moses, that you may succeed in all that you do and wherever you turn, so that the Lord may carry out his promise, which he spoke concerning me, saying, if your sons are careful of their way, to walk before me in the truth with all their heart and with all their soul, and you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. That was the charge that David gave to Solomon. And it seemed to take hold, at least to some degree, in the early years of Solomon's reign. But even in the early years, we find that Solomon has this strange mixture that will be even more exemplified in the book of Ecclesiastes, but this strange mixture of both sinful compromise and sincere commitment. We find that at the beginning of chapter 3 of 1 Kings. Then Solomon formed a marriage alliance with Pharaoh of all people. And he took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her to the city of David until he had finished building his own house and the house of the Lord and the wall around Jerusalem. And the people were still sacrificing on the high places because there was no house built for the name of the Lord until those days. There's the compromise. It was very clear from Deuteronomy that the kings were not to intermarry with other nations. It was clear from the law 
that the leaders of Israel were to remain pure and solely committed to the law of God and not mix themselves in any way for political alliances with the nations around them. And here we have Solomon compromising. And yet, we see sincere commitment. This paradox in this man, we continue reading, now Solomon loved Yahweh. Walking in the statutes of his father David, except he sacrificed and burned incense on the high places. The king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for that was the great high place, and Solomon offered a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. We go on to read then in chapter 3 that that's where the Lord then appears to Solomon and says, ask whatever you wish and I will give it to you. And we find this response by Solomon, which all of us learned even as children, this very, this very well-known account, this narrative of, of Solomon's response. Solomon said to the Lord, you have shown great loving kindness to your servant David, my father, according as he walked before you in truth and righteousness and uprightness of heart toward you. And you have reserved for him this great loving kindness that You have given him a son to sit on his throne as it is this day. Now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in the place of David, my father. Yet I am but a little child. I do not know how to go out or come in. Your servant is in the midst of your people, which you have chosen a great people who are too many to be numbered or counted. So give your servant an understanding heart to judge your people and discern between good and evil for who is able to judge this great people of yours. What a great prayer. And then, of course, we know the Lord's response. This was pleasing in the sight of the Lord. Verse 10 of chapter 3 says, And so God said to him, Because you have asked this thing and have not asked for yourself a long life, nor have you asked riches for yourself, nor have you asked for the life of your enemies, but you have asked yourself for, or for yourself discernment to understand justice. Behold, I have done according to your words. Behold, I have given you a wise and discerning heart so that there has been no one like you before you, nor shall one like you arise after you. I have also given what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that there will not be any among the kings like you all your days. If you walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and commandments, as your father David walked, then I will prolong your days. The Lord gives to Solomon that wisdom, and not only that, he gives to Solomon that which Solomon did not even request. We read then in chapter 4, verse 29 to 34, of the kind of wisdom that the Lord gave to Solomon. We read this, God gave Solomon wisdom and very great discernment and breadth of mind like the sand that is on the seashore. Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the sons of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt. For he was wiser than all men, then Ethan, the Ezraite, Heman, Calcol, Darda, the sons of Mahol, and his fame was known in all the surrounding nations. He also spoke three 
1,000 proverbs, and his songs were 1,005. He spoke of trees from the cedar that is in Lebanon, even to the hyssop that grows on the wall. He spoke also of animals and birds and creeping things and fish. Men came from all peoples to hear the wisdom of Solomon from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom. We get to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. We come to one of the great Mount Everest chapters of the Old Testament, the great dedicatory prayer of Solomon as the temple is completed and then he prays before the Lord, dedicating the temple to the Lord in front of the people. It is one of those great chapters that, that is so powerful. In fact, Paul in his Areopagus address of Acts 17 takes statements from 1 Corinthians or 1 Kings 8 and uses them in his Areopagus address. A very, very powerful prayer. But let me read just the final benediction of this prayer. 1 Kings 8, 56 to 60. Solomon says, Blessed be the Lord who has given rest to his people Israel according to all that he promised. Not one word has failed of all his good promise, which he promised through Moses, his servant. May the Lord our God be with us as he was with our fathers. May he not leave us or forsake us, that he may incline our ears to himself to walk in all his ways and to keep his commandments and his statutes and his ordinances, which he commanded our fathers. And may these words of mine, with which I have made supplication before the Lord, be near to the Lord our God day and night, that he may maintain the cause of his servant and the cause of his people Israel, as each day requires, so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord is God and there is no one else. And the Lord accepted that dedicatory prayer and his glory filled that temple and it became that meeting place there in the city of David. But sadly, Solomon's life does not continue on that same trajectory. By the time we get to 1 Kings 11, the tables have turned and now we see that some of the sins of his youth, the thistles, that had planted those deep-rooted roots, now send up shoots. And now we find that Solomon's life is filled with compromise. Let me read just one section, 1 Corinthians 11, 1 to 6. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian and Hittite women from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the sons of Israel, you shall not associate with them, nor shall they associate with you, for they will surely turn your heart away after their gods. Solomon held fast to these in love. He had 700 wives princesses and 300 concubines and his wives turned his heart away for when Solomon was old his wives turned his heart away after other gods and his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father had been 
For Solomon went after the Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the detestable idol of the Ammonites. Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not follow the Lord fully as David his father had done. And we go on to read that the the Lord then was angry with Solomon. And from that moment in chapter 11 that we read in that chapter just begins this sad ending, this conclusion to Solomon's life. Solomon hit rock bottom. He is made to taste vanity as he goes on to explain in the book of Ecclesiastes as one who had achieved and received so much He is one who uniquely tastes of the emptiness of life as God's discipline for him, as God had stated in the Davidic covenant that the sons of men would discipline Solomon. The rods of men would strike against his back. And that's what happened. Solomon experiences the emptiness of all that wisdom he had received, experiences the emptiness of all the wealth, all the fame, all the power, all those things which each one of us secretly aspires to. Solomon found that in and of themselves, these things are empty. A mist that passes away. He he solidifies his life as, as one who in history is uniquely identified as the one who experienced the height of God's material blessings as well as the depths, the dregs, so to speak, of folly. And we read that he then dies. He then passes off the scene So what do we make of his life, especially with that sober and very challenging ending to Solomon's life? What do we make of it? How can such a one write Ecclesiastes? We don't have all the answers for that. People still ask today, when was Ecclesiastes written? When was Solomon changed? Or when did he repent? We don't really know. But we do know this, that the Lord, who knows all things, had called Solomon Jedidiah, the one he loved. And he used Solomon, as we know, to write most of Proverbs, to write Psalm 72, that great psalm of the reign of the righteous king, to write Psalm 127, the song of a sense that begins, unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Solomon wrote that. And he writes this as well, as well as Song of Songs. Where do we put these all in in Solomon's life, well, we could kind of look at it this way. This is our best estimate. We don't know for certain because Solomon doesn't tell us. Nonetheless, we can assume that Solomon writes Song of Songs in his youth at that early stage of his life. And Song of Songs, that, that, that other bewildering book, is an exposition of, of Genesis 2 and what God had created as the pinnacle of his creation, the union of a husband and a wife. Song of Songs is that exposition of that great truth. Then Solomon writes Psalm 72 and 127 
as well as compiling the most of the book of Proverbs then in the middle of his reign as he's really at the height of his glory and only at the very end after he had been made to taste the bitter cup of all that folly that he engaged in with having such resources, he then writes Ecclesiastes as a testimony, as a biography, an autobiography of his life. He becomes the quintessential figure to write about the true source of significance because he'd seen it all from all different angles. And you could say this, that he searched out significance in every place possible except in the Lord to see if it could be found there until he was brought to the bottom of the ash heap and realized that significance can only be found by looking up above all these things. And so Solomon is the one that when he speaks to us about all of our false pursuits, all of our desires to find contentment and joy in things, in power in this earth, in possessions, in women, in substances. Solomon is here to say, I've been there, I've done that, and I'm telling you, it is a black hole. It is a dead end. There is nothing but misery. But let me also tell you where you can find that which your soul so desperately longs for. And it is in the Creator in God, in the one shepherd. And that's what leads to this last quality or this last characteristic of Solomon that we can derive really from other descriptions in this book. He is a beseeching prophet. In chapter 12, verse 1, as he comes to an end, he tells us, beginning in verse 9, that he has sought very hard to express all of these profound truths, these perplexing realities. He has sought hard to express them carefully. But then notice what he says. The words of wise men, 12 verse 11, are like goads and masters of these collections are like well-driven nails. They are given by one shepherd. Solomon recognized that even though the story was his, the truths, the exhortations to remember our creator in the days of our youth, to fear God, those exhortations and even all of the expressions of his search come from one shepherd. You see, Solomon doesn't want to be the focus of this story. He is not the hero of Ecclesiastes. Even in his repentance, he does not want to be seen as the hero. Charles Bridges expresses it clearly. He says this, one thing is clear. He has not written a line in this book that tends to give one particle of palliation of his sin. The whole treatise is a sad character about, has a sad character about it. A mournful commentary. Mainly it is a book of confession. You see, sometimes when we tell our testimonies and we talk about life before Christ, we kind of giggle about the kind of foolishness that we got into. That's not Solomon. There is, there is no snickering 
There is no winking here of the wild oats that he sowed. There is just sorrow. He is not the hero. Instead, Solomon, from beginning to end, points to another. He points to the creator who must be remembered more than just a recollection from time to time. He points to this one shepherd who is the source of all truth and wisdom and who is benevolent in giving this wisdom through his instruments. He points to the God who is to be feared and Obeyed. In fact, when we get to the very end of the book, then we find the interpretive key that unlocks everything that comes before it. Solomon says this, the conclusion, when all has been heard, is fear God and keep his commandments. Because this applies to every person. For God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. There is a reality beyond the material world, and that reality is God. He is one who never forgets. He is one who is sovereign, who is infinitely different from us. And yet he is also benevolent in that he has given us his word. He has revealed himself to us for us to know the way of life, And Solomon calls upon us to fear him. This is not a fear that is that, that is that adrenal response of fight or flight. Solomon is not saying fight God or fear, or or flee from him. Solomon is saying fear him. And what that means is reverent adoration, that kind of recognition that nothing else in this world matters, that he is the majestic one that is on the one hand so frightful, yet so compelling. And that our lives come to have meaning and significance by orienting everything around the pursuit of that one. Charles Bridges again says this as he reflects upon the purpose then of this book. It may be stated simply, To solve the problem which from the day when Adam fell has been the great inquiry among men and on which philosophy could throw no light. Who will show us any good? Psalm 4 verse 6. It is to bring about into clear view the chief good, the true happiness of man. In what it does not consist, not in the wisdom, pleasures, honors, and riches of the world, but in what it does consist, the enjoyment and service of God. Beggars we are, even with all the riches of the Indies, without him. But he is the substitute for everything. Nothing can be a substitute for him. Of course, as we close, we cannot help but think of the one that's greater than Solomon. Jesus, who is the one who is completely different from Solomon, though being a son of David. And we have the words, for example, in Matthew 12, right at the height of Israel's rejection of the Messiah, Matthew chapter 12 comes to a climax. The religious leaders are rejecting Jesus, the son of David, 
the king, their Messiah. And Jesus pronounces this verdict on Israel. The men of Nineveh will stand up in this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south, the queen of Sheba, will rise up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Solomon did not point to himself. He pointed to one beyond him. And that one would ultimately be the Lord Jesus Christ. So as we embark on this study... Let's remember who wrote this book, his unique qualifications, and that he writes with persuasion and passion. He functions to gather us together from the distractions of life and to focus our minds on that which is most important. Let's now pray that the Lord would press these lessons home in our own lives. Father, we do thank you for this book of Ecclesiastes. It is a book that we need. And we know that not only because 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture is inspired and therefore profitable for teaching and correction and reproof. But this book of Ecclesiastes is needed for us because we find ourselves in the compromises of Solomon. And as we read through this book over and over again, we will find ourselves there in that ash heap, in that mist. And yet we must follow Solomon's direction And we pray that we would follow that direction right to you. Ultimately, to your son, Jesus Christ, the one who is greater than Solomon and who gives us what Solomon could never give us. As we start this study, we pray for your spirit to use this book in in a most supernatural way. And we ask this for your glory's sake. Amen.